Hi, I'm Dom Fay. And I'm Zach Mander. And welcome to So What, a show from Origin that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and explores the solutions that exist today. So this season on the show, we're trying to answer those big questions we all have about the renewable energy transition, because there's a lot of them. In the last episode, we looked at how we need to transition away from coal towards renewables, but the energy industry is changing all the time, and I've got to admit, Zach, from the perspective of a consumer, I find it pretty confusing. Well, to be fair, you once legitimately Googled, can I be sunburnt by the moon? So maybe your journey on solar power, it might be a bit longer than others. You can't be sunburned by the moon, uh, by the way, just in case anyone was wondering. I don't think they were. But I do have some questions of my own. Like, what's the cost of switching to renewables? Dom, you know I've got a young family, and before we had kids, energy wasn't a big concern. We just didn't use much. But as we add members to the household, especially little ones who like playing in mud, the amount of laundry goes up, the dishwashing, there's even more rooms to cool and heat... I start to think, is there a better way of doing this? Maybe a cheaper way, a more comfortable way, just generally more efficient. So today, I want to try and break it all down. And I think a good place to start is to speak to someone who's already made the switch. From the front door, um, there's a few things that are really obvious. Um, the first is that the house faces the wrong way for a low energy house, it faces west and low energy, good low energy houses have to face north, um, so we have problems with summer sun. This is Alan Leanarts. Alan is someone who is deeply passionate about making his home more sustainable and finding ways to be more energy efficient. We did a lot of simple passive things like oversizing the eaves, installing blinds, installing trees to, to shade us in summer along the west side. We've also built uh, a portico which completely shades the front door so there's no direct sun on the front door in, in summer. And um, there's a bespoke front door which is twice as thick as a normal door because it's an insulated front door. Australians are all feeling the pinch of rising power prices. So these price increases really start to impact the household budget. Well, I know that that's true, but what can I do about it? I mean, I obviously have to keep the Christmas lights on every December. Are Christmas lights your biggest concern? Well, are there bigger concerns, Zach? You know how seriously I take Christmas. In fact, I've got an idea. Do you reckon we could run the entire grid on Christmas spirit like Santa's sleigh in Elf? I know this might be surprising to you, but the movie Elf isn't actually an accurate portrayal of the ins and outs of running an energy grid. Festive spirit, not a viable option. Imagine if it was, though. I could power the whole country. In fact, should I start caroling now, just in case? No. Well, how about this? I'll give it a go. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. You're fading me down. Well, in some ways, people like Alan have taken the matter into their own hands. As you know, Australians love all things DIY. The Saturday afternoon Bunnings trip is a cultural institution. Did you know that Aussies spend over $20 billion a year at hardware stores? Ooh, that's a lot of sausages. Well, even the snags are getting more expensive in this current climate. Everything is more expensive. It's snagflation all round. Is snagflation a technical financial term? I won't believe it until that bearded guy from the Comsec report uses it. Back to Alan, though. He's the kind of guy that's leading the charge. Pun intended. He's taking DIY to the next level, snagging some great deals to improve his energy usage. And a lot of what he's done are projects that many homeowners could try. Well, we've done double glazing. 
Um, I'm experimenting with triple glazing retrofits at the moment just to improve its winter performance. Um, we have uh, some seasonal shutters which we can install on both west and north windows for different times of the year to um, reduce or increase um, solar exposure to the house. Ooh, I'm really into double glazing too. Uh, Alan's not talking about donuts. Oh. Not only has Alan double glazed the windows, but when he was extending his house, he took the opportunity to upgrade the insulation and installed doors to close down different sections of the home. He's also experimenting with a pretty unique solar heating system that circulates air through a series of tubes on the top of his carport. The carport's covered in polycarbonate, which creates a virtual space. And between that space, it gets very warm. And then the warm air gets pumped in through thermostatically controlled fans in those two um, vents there. And that's why this room is 22 degrees on a Melbourne day when it's 9 degrees outside. So that's called free heat. And um, that's why I don't worry about heating how much it costs to heat my house, because 90% of it's free from that, that simple thing right there. I mean, this all sounds great, but is it actually having an impact? Well, according to Alan, it is. And he knows because, you know, he's got his thermal camera. I'm experimenting with different types of retrofits. So these windows, I've got rigid perspex um, add-ons to the, to, the, to the walls. That was another experiment, um, just to see what difference it makes. And you measure it with a thermal camera and see what your, your outcomes were. So I can measure this side and this side, and this side's going to be five degrees warmer than this side. Wait, hang on a minute. Alan has a thermal camera? Yeah, because um, science. Otherwise you're wasting your time. Yeah, you've got to have some, some science. We have to, have to make decisions with science, that's right. Okay, well, Alan clearly has some great DIY energy efficiency. The really impressive thing about Alan's place is it's not just a green home. It's a really sustainable and energy efficient house, unlike yours, Dom. Oh, well, come on, Zach. If I don't keep the aircon running at 18 degrees all year round, how is it ever going to feel like the North Pole? Well, I'm not sure how sustainable Santa's operations are, but Alan certainly has it down pat. The thing about Alan's place is it wasn't built like this originally. It's all been achieved through affordable renovations, modifications and adopting new ideas. I've built, uh, renovated and retrofitted a, a 1960s era brick veneer to bring it up to plus eight stars. Um, partly as an environmental initiative to reduce carbon emissions, but also as a, a way of making the house more comfortable and um, much cheaper to run. Eight stars? I didn't even know you could get that many. Is it like when you book a five-star hotel and then when you get there you see there's actually a sixth star? Like, who's awarding these extra stars? Where are they coming from? Well, unlike hotels, homes can get up to ten stars depending on how efficient they are. But Alan, he's achieved that through his own efforts. He is, by definition, an early adopter. If there's any new ideas that could make his home more efficient, he's ready to test them out and use science to see if it makes a difference. Which is why, more than a decade ago, Alan invested in rooftop solar. But I have three, three solar photovoltaic journeys. Alan's experience with solar was a process that played out over a number of years. Back when solar was a new thing, he started out with a 1 kilowatt system. Then, around 2013, he moved to a 3 kilowatt system, with a battery for a flat out the back. And then, um, two or three years ago, I um, had a th another solar photovoltaic journey with the Origin Virtual Power Plant, which is a bigger system with a bigger battery. 
um, and it sits quietly in the background and does its thing. But you know, for the most part, it just increases my solar capacity. We explored Origin's virtual power plant, Loop, last season. And if you missed that episode, I'll put a link in the show notes. But as a refresher, Loop is basically an orchestrated network of distributed energy assets and home batteries. And it's really a way of everyone being able to participate in the energy transformation. Everyone who signs up gets rewarded for making your home battery available to discharge to help manage demand on the network. When you generate power with your solar panels, that gets stored in your battery for use around your home. And if the network needs energy, Origin can take that power from the VPP rather than from other sources, and then you get a credit on your bill. It gives you the best of having access to solar and can help reduce the payback period for your home batteries. Power's always on. Um, The battery works faultlessly in the background such that it gives you energy until it doesn't and then it switches over to the mains. So you, you don't really know that's happening unless you monitor the battery in real time which is um, I'm not that big a nerd um, but um, uh, the way the VPP works is that I get I think I get about 90% of the battery and Origin gets 10% or something and and so that's their bit to play with and, and I've got my bit and they use theirs when they want to and it's all controlled via the interweb and, and I use my bit kind of every day um, so um, it, it's just so um well, seamless, I guess, quiet, hidden. It all happens in the background, so I, I, I don't even know that it's there. It's, it, there's no different to any other house on electricity in terms of supply and demand and what you can use. There are now over 121,000 services connected to Loop, and they're contributing 258 megawatts to the overall network. That's already more energy than one unit at a gas-fired power plant. By 2026, Origin plans to have two gigawatts of capacity in loop. And by 2050, AEMO says we will have 31 gigawatts of dispatchable power coming from VPPs around the country. Along with other ideas like Vehicle 2 Grid, where your EV can power your home. The best part of the VPP journey is that people like Alan are helping all of us and reducing their energy bills at the same time. So let me get this straight, Zach. If you're a homeowner, you can be like Alan and transform your house into a more energy efficient one, especially if it's an older building. And installing rooftop solar and a battery as part of the VPP can actually save you a lot of money in the long run. Absolutely. And who doesn't love some extra cash in the bank? Well, especially in this inflated sausage economy. Please never say inflated sausage economy again. Yeah, fair call. You know, this did get me thinking, though, about how costs are going to change as this transition ramps up. Because as a society, we're going to have to invest a lot more in infrastructure across the whole country. So with electricity, all the studies we're aware of, all the official credible studies that that we've seen show that uh, in the longer term, the unit cost of electricity produced and stored and firmed uh, from clean sources is cheaper than the alternative. This is Bruce Mountain from the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. Well, hang on a second. His name is Bruce Mountain? Yeah, it's one of the most masculine names I've ever heard. I think I'm growing facial hair just hearing it. Well, Bruce is a researcher who studies energy economics and policy. From a log cabin in the woods. No, I think it's just a normal office. A normal office in the woods. No, it's just a normal office in a normal building in a normal city. Oh. No woods? No, but he does say that Australia is uniquely positioned to be a leader in the renewable transition. 
My views on this are based somewhat on my time in the UK, uh, where I work on power industry issues, but also on a number of other countries. Uh, in terms of un underlying resource, we've got fantastic sun, and we've got fantastic detached or semi-detached homes um, that don't have heritage overlay for most of them. So we've got this great underlying infrastructural resource and uh, I think culturally quite oriented towards transition and new things. We're early adopters of all sorts of tech. So those to me are the big advantages. When I watch the Tour de France, you see all those wonderful photographs of the, the roofs in France and with their lovely clay tiles. There's heritage overlay galore on those. They can't exploit a whole lot of the rooftop solar potential that they have. Um, so we don't have that 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 disadvantage if you like sure we don't have some of the um, aesthetic beauty of some of those French French villages but we've got heaps of other advantage so we know we need to build a lot more infrastructure and that in the long run renewables are going to be cheaper than the alternatives but someone has to pay for all this investment so what does that mean for power prices Zach will we the customers need to pick up the tab I'm going to let Bruce take that one I don't know. Um, my guess is uh, over the long history of the electricity industry, um, some fair bit of it was effectively paid for by taxpayers. Certainly governments needed to put up the big doses of capital. And here in Australia and as in most countries, governments tended to fund the development of the power industry. It was capital intensive. It needed central coordination. It, it didn't necessarily need it, but it gained from it. Um, that's been the history in Australia. I suspect uh, with this transition, we know we've got cheaper tech in future, which will bring prices down. We know that it'll be cheaper overall. So my guess is uh, taxpayers will probably not end up paying much in the long term, but in the short term, they may well be taking a bit of a hit. It's an interesting time to be asking that question at the moment. This is Karen Wilkins, a manager in the commercial transactions team at Origin. You know, with the... Um the power prices we're seeing across the world with um, coal and gas and in, in particular what happened in the UK with quite a few um, small retailers uh, going under. It's a really dynamic time and so what we really need to do is develop our battery capability and develop our wind capability to start shifting some of our renewable generation outside of that peak midday load and um, start seeing, I guess, a smoother generation of renewables into the electricity market. Karen's day-to-day -day is actually scouting for new, what they call greenfield locations, which will be ideal for the rollout of renewables. So she's on the front lines of this transition. I've certainly got a lot of maps open in terms of looking at transmission, um, solar irradiance, all the different factors, even planning and environmental constraints, but there's nothing quite like actually seeing it in person. You know, what is that contour really like when you're seeing it? So there's been a few where we thought they were a winner and you get out there and you're like, well, a bit too hilly, a bit too much cut and fill perhaps. Um, but when, when you're on the right site, you definitely know. Uh, Zach, I've got a question. What's a greenfield location? Why don't you have a stab? Okay, I'll have a go. Is a greenfield location a location with a field that is green? What excellent powers of deduction you have there, Dom. Yes, come on. It's a location that hasn't been built on, but would be perfect for large-scale solar or wind. Okay, okay, a follow-up then. What makes a great location to put a solar farm? Surely anywhere with sunlight could be a solar farm. Well, yes, but there's actually a bit of a process. 
First we'll have a look at the portfolio. So Origin will have energy positions across Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia and we'll assess you know, where we need more energy in the portfolio on a state basis. Uh, the New South Wales government's given us a little bit of a um, helping hand by pointing out some renewable energy zones that they're looking to develop and focus the development of renewable energy within those. Um, and then within there, there's a benefit to be close to transmission lines. So obviously transmission is both expensive, but also the easements that you need to get across people's land. We want to minimise um, both the costs and disruptions to people. So anything that's close to transmission is valuable. While most homes with solar are running small systems, with the average new install being 9.5 kilowatts, as we transition, we need a lot more large-scale solar farms. We're talking about farms that can generate in the hundreds or even thousands of megawatts. So they need to be big and they're going to need a lot of space. We would look at a minimum 100, 200 hectares to get started. So 100 hectares is about 50 megawatts. So there's quite a few things you need to consider. Um, is the Aboriginal heritage, um, the ecology, any creeks. And so I guess the clearer the land, the more condensed that your solar farm can be. But as you start to um, account for all of these different variables across the land, your site gets bigger and bigger. We have, just using round numbers, we're about a thousand acres. And uh, one of the metrics we use to measure how much coverage the panels have is there's about 780 acres underneath the panels themselves. So it, it's quite a big farm. This is Joshua Watts, and Joshua is a solar generation technician for APA, which operates the Darling Down Solar Farm out past Dolby in regional Queensland, around three hours' drive from Brisbane. Hang on a second. His last name is Watts, and he works for Solar Power. Yes, this episode has some great names. He was born for that role. Yeah, he comes from a great family, a real energetic bunch. Yeah, that doesn't shock me. Anyway, this solar farm in the Darling Downs is pretty big. There's almost half a million panels generating over 100 megawatts of power. Everywhere you look, there are rows and rows of panels. So, like, as we stand here now, we're standing in, in the middle of one of our zones. So from here, we can see probably 50 or 60 combiner boxes up and down the rows. They're one of the 800. Uh, we can see one of our power conversion units that we refer to as PCUs. Uh, we can hear that humming away in the, in the background. And you might be surprised, Dom, but this solar farm is really just a large version of what more than three million Aussies have on their roofs. Except instead of a small inverter, each row of panels has a combiner box. And those combiner boxes feed into a power conversion unit. And that's what turns all the power into a high voltage current that can be moved around the NEM, the National Electricity Market. This is, yeah, so this is essentially the same technology that you've got on your house um, in terms of the power electronics inside of it, how we take the DC on your roof and turn it into AC that you can use or send back into the grid. Um, it's just sized up many, many times. So each one of these is good for 2,750 kilowatts, which is about 2.5 meg, um, whereas the ones on your house are, are substantially smaller. Um, each one of these combiner boxes and each one of the sets of panels we have is between 1300 and sits just shy of 1500 volts. 
our power conversion unit, it takes that and inverts it from 1300 volts DC into 600 volts AC. The transformer takes that from 600 volts AC, turns it into 33,000 volts AC, and then we send it out the front gate. What's that buzz? I-, I thought solar farms were meant to be quiet. Well, they are, but that's the power conversion unit. And you'll actually hear it change depending on how much electricity the farm is generating. So Dom, this right here is the sound of the future. You know, one thing I've heard is that people with solar need to clean the panels regularly to keep them operating at maximum efficiency. But how would you even do that with half a million panels? Well, it's not going to come as a surprise to learn that, yeah, keeping this place online is a pretty big job. We've got to clean those. We've got to maintain the vegetation around them, which in itself is a big job. We need to maintain the combiner boxes so we know we've got to open them up, clean them out, check for hot spots, do all what you'd normally do um, with stuff around your house. When you, you know, when you clean your, when you clean your uh, solar panels every year, you go up there and you clean them. We do the same thing, but we've got half a million to clean. We've got to maintain those inverters, so we've got to get inside and clean them out every couple of months. Uh, we've got to get inside and clean out, maintain our HV cabinets, make sure that they're nice and clean. So, you know, day to day, there's there's quite a bit of, I guess, cleaning is is the big one for us. Josh mentioned maintaining the vegetation. What he really means is there's a lot of mowing to do. Yeah, I guess a thousand acres is a lot to mow, but I think I've got the solution. When I was getting a snag the other week, I saw these robot lawnmowers, robo-mows. Well, actually, Josh did have something to say about that. Yeah, well, we've had a look at the robot lawnmowers. Unfortunately, we, uh, our panels are not high enough to be able to get them to go underneath, so it's definitely an option we've looked at. It's a no-go on the robo-mows? For this instance, yes. At least for the mow. Well, I used to mow my neighbour's lawn for $10 when I was a kid. I'm happy to pitch in and help out. That is so lovely of you, Dom. I'll pass it on to Joshua. You give him my number. But while robot mowers are not an option at Darling Downs, Josh does feel like he's still working on the future of energy. He used to work in oil and gas, and he's found the transition somewhat tranquil. It's a lot calmer. You know, you can, I don't know if you feel it, but, you know, when you walk up and down the roads, it's a lot calmer. It's not calm at a power station or a compressor station or on a drill rig. It's just not, it feels like it's uh, a lot more at one with the environment, if that makes sense to you. Um, you you come out here, you can see the birds. We've got some plains turkeys and that and some emus and some kangaroos. You don't really see them as much in those other industries. Um, Yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. It kind of feels a lot more at one with the environment. Well, all of this sounds great, but I'm sure that tranquility comes at a price to consumers. Because if we need to build dozens or hundreds of these big farms, plus all the transmission infrastructure, it's going to be expensive. I mean, I'm happy to pitch in with my mowing income, but what about people that feel that hit more than others and might not be in a position to take on some of those costs? Well, there's actually a potential solution here too. According to Andrew Blakers from the Australian National University. Well, the subscription model is the obvious way to do this. Companies come in and say, we will install 10 kilowatts on your roof and we will install a 10 or 20 kilowatt hour battery and we will own it, we will maintain it and we will charge you a fixed fee for the electricity. So you don't have to worry about anything. We'll look after everything um, and there's no upfront cost to you. Andrew says this model can even be applied to electric vehicles. If you don't have the the fifty to eighty thousand dollars required for an electric vehicle, 
you lease it effectively and you uh, you pay back that lease at pretty much the rate that you would be paying for petrol and maintenance and um, this way you you overcome that social barrier this is simply um, a social and financial engineering issue it's got nothing to do with um, economics in the sense that you're going to save money anyway that sounds almost too good to be true yeah and I need to be clear, these are just ideas on how it could run in the future. But Bruce Mountain says that even current options, like bundling solar with batteries, can make switching to renewables more affordable, which will inevitably help drive mass adoption. So if you buy battery retail now, you pay a good deal more than you would in a solar battery bundle or a financed package. Um, solar battery bundles now put the whole thing together as a unit. There's a whole range of gains that the retailers obtain through that change of the relationship, which the evidence is showing they're passing on to customers in cheaper deals. So I think we're there in terms of the technology. I think it's now about the marketing and sales of the technology. We will undoubtedly see greater and more cost decline in battery, which will make the underlying costs even cheaper. Um, but I don't think we need to achieve that to get the mass adoption now. I think the gains to be had are in how it's actually commercialised. As more and more people start to talk about these huge issues, Bruce says our relationship with energy is evolving because once people like Alan sign up to solar, they start to become more engaged with the whole process. I think it's changed massively over the last decade as people have got their own solar, so many of whom are now engaged in it. They've got the environmental feel-good associated with the cleaner supply, they're getting export income and all, all the economics tells us that people value a dollar earned more than a dollar saved. So they love their feed-in income and they assess that and they, they know it. Um, they are now producers and consumers and so they're interacting now with an industry that serves them. They feel they're on a more equal footing. Uh, economically and uh, commercially, they'll begin to think of electricity a bit like petrol, where everyone knows the price of petrol because you see cents per litre. We'll think of electricity in a similar way. We can engage with it on a price level and on a technology level. I think many customers will, will engage with it. Some won't. Some won't care. Um, but I don't think they, they, they need to. Um, I think the age of electricity become interesting to many is, is here. So, Zach, what if I don't have the cash to invest in solar or a battery? What can I do as a consumer to be part of the change now, you know, to reduce my power bill and help make the system better for everybody? Maybe a smaller Christmas lights display would be a good start. No chance. I will never compromise on festive cheer. I know you have a strong stance on this. I'll go to my grave on this one. Well, I think it's time we circle back to Alan then, because if there's anyone who will have some DIY tips, I know he's the guy. So first of all, identify where you're spending all your energy and then start looking for ways to reduce it. Oh, I love a short and sharp response. Reducing energy usage sounds like a difficult thing to do, but there's ways to make it easier, such as signing up to Spike, which is Origin's app that turns energy into a game. When there's a spike hour, customers get rewarded with points for turning off the lights, and those points can be redeemed for cash. We actually explored this idea of turning energy into a game in the last season, and it's a really interesting initiative. Alan says each of us needs to go on our own journey, because whether we like it or not, change is coming, and it's coming fast. Well, everyone needs to go on this journey in some way. How much and what part of this journey other people go on is, I guess, dependent on 
how what house they've inherited and and their capacity to to participate i guess so um if your journey is just sealing up the draft so you don't pump all your hot air straight out the house in winter, that, that's a good start. If your journey includes double glazing windows as well, that's another good start. If you wanted to go and build a solar air heater, then you'll get the benefits of that as well. It's, I'm not a builder, but I managed to build one. It's not rocket science. But everyone, everyone, 100% everyone's going to go on this journey at some point in the, throughout the next 10 years of the carbon crisis. You're going to have to do something. <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know what it is for your house, but so you're going to have to do something. <laughs> yep. Change is happening across our energy network. And as it turns out, a lot of this is being enabled by machines, by data and AI. So in the next episode of So What, we want to find out how artificial intelligence is going to change our energy future. So now you have a, a way more complex problem to solve because you're producing energy... Um, much more unreliable and it's much more decentralized so this control problem of how to meet demand and in which way it's much more complicated and that's now where we use these smart technologies to to make the grid smarter in that sense to to have this control um, implemented. So What is the show that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and is brought to you by Origin. Production and scripting by the team at Lawson Media. If you're keen to find out ways to improve your own energy efficiency, we'll leave a link in the show notes of this episode. You can learn more about this podcast and listen to other episodes at originenergy.com.au forward slash so what or just hit subscribe in the podcast app you're using right now. And be on the lookout for my new podcast, Dom Sings Christmas Carols, coming into your feed in the coming weeks. I don't see that in this credits. Are you ad-libbing? I might have put that one in myself, but uh, that one's on the way soon. No, it's not. This series is hosted by me, Zach Mander, and Dom Fay, and we'll speak to you next episode, where Dom will be limited to a maximum of two Christmas references. And eight carols. No, that's a Christmas reference. Oh.